This episode of the Retail Oasis Retail Wrap-Up Podcast is proudly brought to you by Afterpay. Bye now, pay later. Welcome to the Retail Oasis Retail Wrap-Up Podcast for 2021. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this was recorded, the Guyamagal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge the Elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. In today's episode, we talk to Hannon Comazetto, the CEO and founder of Aerobe. Aerobe is a new way to resell your fashion after you've worn it and loved it. Their technology integrates directly into your favorite online stores so you can see what the estimated resale value is before you even purchase. Then with one click, you can list the item for resale when you're ready. With the resale economy at the forefront of retail innovation, it's no wonder this startup secured investments from such investors as Paul Greenberg, an early investor in Afterpay and a famous name in the Australian retail community, and US investor Brian Sugar, the founder of Pop Sugar. During today's conversation with Hannon, we discussed the creation of Aerobe and how the platform works for new users, as well as her motivation to come up with the concept. We also talk about her introduction to the circular economy and how changes in consumer behavior are driving this trend. Hannon also shares her seed funding journey and her advice for startups looking to get the ball rolling. And finally, we hear what the future holds for Aerobe. If you'd like to find out more about Hannon and Aerobe, more information can be found in the show notes. Thank you to our guest, Hannon. We hope you enjoy this episode. For any of our listeners who may not have heard of Aerobe, can you tell us about the company, its creation and its evolution since it began? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we started Aerobe a couple of years ago after seeing this real gap in the market for, you know, enabling brands and retailers to enter the re-commerce economy. Um, and, you know, what we found after speaking to fashion brands and retailers was this big desire to enter the so-called secular fashion economy and to be more sustainable. But there was this big problem with the solutions that were out there for retailers. You know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of solutions that really scale. And more importantly, um, there was no real solutions that actually really focus on growing the financial metrics that really matter, growing sales and growing bottom line. Um, And I guess for me, you know, coming from the world of M&A, consulting, um, you know, helping big companies decide what to invest in, particularly in the realm of disruptive technologies, I really did focus in on that, you know, financial angle. Um, And so, you know, Arab... You know, what we are, we're we're a tech platform for the fashion industry. We enable both the retailer and their end consumers to very seamlessly enter and monetize the circular re-commerce economy very seamlessly. Um, By circular economy, we mean engaging in reselling, recycling, donating, all those, you know, great things that prevent items from ending up in landfill. Um, And we're also the home of the solution called the Circular Wardrobe, which is this exciting e-commerce integration um, that we deliver to fashion retailers. And it's a solution that really, you know, drives sales metrics, improves the bottom line and provides, of course, sustainable outcomes as well. So it's kind of interesting. I think you've just described for us at a high level how Aerobe works. But maybe we could just dig in a little bit on these financials. 
I'm quite keen. Yeah. You made a point with your M&A background. Yeah. Really interested in finding ways to do things with clear financial outcomes. Could you maybe just talk to us through a process and describe how those financial outcomes work? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, so for our retailers, so we, we partner with retailers, we deliver them our circular wardrobe solution. Um, and what our partnerships, um, you know, have shown is that through, you know, entering the circular economy and delivering this solution, um, I guess, firstly, we're helping them um, increase their average order values, their e-commerce metrics and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're also, um, I guess this is really through helping the customer to see the value in investing in those higher quality pieces. Um, but our retailers are also able to attract really, you know, um, some, you know, the, uh, the millennial consumer, the Gen Z and the conscious consumer. So they're seeing sort of that customer acquisition. They're also seeing really big improvements as well in, um, customer loyalty and retention metrics. So um, in terms of what our partners have seen, a lot of them have seen those metrics double. Um, and in terms of sort of e-commerce metrics, they're also seeing sort of, you know, average order value increase by over 55%, for instance. That's they're also seeing, you know, a reduction in, in returns. So items coming back and getting returned. Um, but also, um, yeah, a lot of improvements in sort of abandoned card and, and, and that sort of thing as well. Impressive. That is very impressive. Can you, I mean, so now you've kind of spoken about the business as a whole, but as a new customer who might find your brand or your company, your business, how would the process work for them to become part of this? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, when we, when we really started looking into this space, from the eyes of the consumer, um, what we really couldn't believe was how annoying it was to actually resell um, secondhand stuff like a watch or a bag or a pair of jeans and, and even, you know, find a repurpose or a reuse opportunity for them. So, Maddie, Steve, you know, I'm not sure, have you guys ever sold something, you know, secondhand on eBay um, or somewhere, somewhere else? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what we realised was, you know, since the 90s, really peer-to-peer -peer platforms have made for an extraordinarily shitty buying and selling experience. And, you know, the deeper we dived, the clearer it became that a lot of these problems come from one key thing, and that's really this slow, clunky listing process where if you want to resell something today um, or even find a recycle opportunity for it, what you're doing is you, you've got to list, um, you've got to really, I guess, fill, fill out all the details about the item completely from scratch. You've got to take photos, upload photos, fill in the details, you know, the material, the size, you've got to try to think back to the price that you paid, which a lot of us consumers just make up. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the garment tag, you might be faded or it's cut off. And so you are also potentially guessing the material. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but, you know, we speak to a lot of people that, um, you know, they plan to resell something, um, but then they never get around to doing it. It ends up sitting in the boot of their car or in the back of their cupboard, or, you know, you dump it in, in a charity bin. 
Um, we've all done it, but, you know, the problem is that the reality is that four out of five items that do get donated to charity end up in landfill. And so, you know, that's where our solution comes in. And so what we do is we integrate into retailer sites so that as a consumer shops for something new, they can choose to add it to their circular wardrobe. Um, but also as you're browsing, you can immediately get information on the resale value of those items. So, you know, the way it works is, you know, you're shopping on your favorite e-commerce store. As you shop, you see a button that sits on retailers' e-commerce sites, kind of like Afterpay, but it is quite different. But it's a button that invites you to add your item to your own circular wardrobe. Um, and so, you know, as you're shopping along, you click that button and then all your purchases get added to your own private virtual circular wardrobe. Um, what that means is that you can come back at any time, come back to your circular wardrobe, and you can very seamlessly in just one click, resell, rent, repurpose, recycle, donate your items. Um, all the details and the images of your purchase, um, you know, we store for the consumer. And so that's why the consumer, you know, it's very seamless. It does happen in just one click. And then Aerobe handles absolutely everything on the secondary hand end to ensure that the item finds a repurpose opportunity. Um, and so, you know, part of the reason our partners are seeing this real boost in sales and increase in average order value is, you know, we're providing this, I guess, this economic proposition for the consumer where we're actually helping to reduce the total cost of ownership. So to buy now, pay later solutions, which are delaying payments, we're reducing the cost of ownership. Um, so, you know, just as an example, you're a consumer, let's say you're shopping for a dress to wear to a wedding you have next week. Maybe you're planning to spend 200, but then you're in love, you know, with this $400 dress from your favorite brand. You see that you can very easily resell the item later for an estimated $300. Um, so you go through that process, you buy the dress, you love it, you wear it, then you resell it for 300. Your total cost of ownership there is just $100. Yeah. So interesting question. Um, yeah. What, what was your introduction to the circular economy? How did you get involved? Where did it start for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, funnily, when I was young, I, I used to buy fashion in, in thrift, short, thrift stores and then, you know, go and sell it for more money on eBay. Um, and, you know, even back then, I always thought there needed to be really, you know, a better way to do it. I couldn't believe, you know, how hard it was to sell secondhand stuff. Um, but years ago, you know, I was consulting to a major fashion house on a supply chain project. And it was during that time that I really found out, you know, just how devastating the fashion industry really is in our world. Um, I became really interested in, I guess, this huge waste problem facing the fashion industry. And, you know, I think similar to others, you know, I think there was, you know, a lot in the news. There was that collapse of the Rainer Plaza clothing manufacturing complex, which killed over a thousand garment workers. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, I think we've all just over the last, you know, several years been really waking up to the dangers of buying cheap clothes. 
Um, and yeah, you know, we saw we saw this big gap, um, particularly for helping fashion brands to solve this problem. Um, and so I really set out to build a platform that would make it easy and profitable for both brands and their customers to really join the circular fashion economy and keep, you know, keep fashion out of landfill. Um, and, you know, I think the main goal is to really get back to the consumption levels that we were at, you know, only just 15 years ago. We've since sort of 3 x our consumption. Um, and so if we can just sort of, you know, increase the lifespan of textiles, um, you know, and sort of move towards, you know, I think there's this really big opportunity to transform what's really one of the biggest polluters into a model for sustainability. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's our goal. Hannah, the question, or the question statement I wanted to make about, I don't know, it was 12 years ago, I was one of the keynote speakers at the Melbourne Fashion Week. Oh, yeah. And I actually gave a talk on disposability versus sustainability. And I put up in front of them a lot of statistics, which you've just talked to as well, about labour costs, about poor returns for labour, about the about the amount of water used, about the damage it makes to the environment. <clears throat> I made a pretty, what I thought was a pretty detailed case. But the problem at that time was that everyone was deeply into disposability. So I guess it's incredibly interesting to see over a 12 or 13-year period, this extraordinary shift in our society to being so much more aware of what's going on. I, I, I suspect it's deeply driven by this higher level of awareness of climate change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's we are seeing this, this huge shift. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's happening across, I think, all consumers. Um, you know, in 2021, you know, 43% of consumers plan to shift their spend to more sustainable brands. But last year, that's that stat, um, it was just 18% of consumers planning to shift their spend. Wow. So that's, you know, that's a 2.5 times jump in the number, you know, of consumers demanding sustainability offerings. Um, and, yeah, I think it is really that awareness. Um, but also I think there's this big, you know, generational shift as well, um, yeah, what you know, one of the interesting stats is that, you know, 91% of millennials prefer to buy from companies associated with a social cause. Um, and so, you know, there is there is this this big movement um, from a generational lens. And, you know, within five years, millennials will account for 50% 50, 50 of retail spend in the economy. So, you know, the buying power and influence of this group is really, it's only going to grow. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's definitely an it's definitely an interesting shift that we're seeing. It is, and that kind of is what I was going to talk about next. Is this real shift that we've seen? I think, like you said, it's generational, but there's also something a little bit cool now about purchasing something that has a story, that has a history, that's you know, like, and we always see that fashion comes around again, doesn't it? But also, you know, through 2020, there was definitely that silver lining where whilst we already saw that behavioural shift happening towards people caring more. It was definitely accelerated, as we love to say, due to COVID. And I think people are now really, they want to know where their products came from, who made them, how they were made. Is there a social cause behind the business that they're purchasing from, like you mentioned? And do you think, and I, I guess I want to know, like, do you think this new mindset is what will drive consumers towards the re-economy? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I have, you know, I've noticed that shift as well. Interestingly, you know, if, if if you ask a young consumer today, um, to pull out all their fashion pieces that they own from deep in their wardrobe, tell them to lay it down, and then you give them a separate pile with just, you know, a quarter of the items, but it's in total, you know, the equivalent in retail value. So you've got some high quality pieces in that that smaller pile. Ask them what pile they prefer to choose, and they almost always choose the pile of higher quality pieces. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that you know re-commerce it it has the ability to you know fundamentally adapt you know the way that we do consume um and i think yeah equally there's this real shift in younger generations really viewing their wardrobe as an asset rather than as an expense um and if you you know you know the value of your wardrobe and you have that sort of vantage point over what is in your wardrobe it really allows consumers to act differently and to start to view their wardrobe as an asset. Um, I think, you know, a big problem traditionally is that shopping ethically or sustainably, it's, you know, it's being perceived as a luxury because of the price points. Um, But, you know, we were talking about this before with thinking through, you know, the cost of ownership. Um, And I think it's, it's really great to see consumers that are shopping with us they are being a bit more savvy investing in those timeless more durable pieces that do hold their value and then they're also reaping the the rewards financially um so it's great to see and yeah i think it is starting we are starting to see you know a driving of preferences away from that sort of disposable fast fashion towards higher quality more sustainable items yeah, I agree. Yeah, so um, obviously you said you started this business a couple of years ago. So there you were, just getting the whole thing structured and organised, and working out your platforms and putting the whole thing together. And along comes COVID. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm just suspecting that the model you were planning on launching is a little different to the model you've actually adapted or adopted in COVID times. Could you maybe explain to us? some of the highlights of the things you brought to the fore for COVID? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so I guess, you know, of course, like everyone, COVID threw up some curveballs for the business. Um, You know, it it meant largely, you know, it meant we worked virtually, you know, we couldn't travel, spent months in back-to-back Zoom calls and pitches. Um, It was actually at at the moment where we were, you know, we were planning to raise... um, sort of in, in May last year. And so we had to, I guess, change our, our fundraising tactics somewhat. Um, you know, instead of meeting investors at in-person events, it was cold messaging on Twitter. Um, but, you know, in terms of the business, um, I'd say, you know, not too much changed. I mean, I was um, prior to that really bootstrapping the business and really researching building MVPs, speaking to retailers both here and in the US. And um, we, um, yeah, I guess it did sort of accelerate some of our plans. Um, But in terms of what we were seeing, you know, I guess we sold far more leisure wear over, you know, cocktail dresses and we sold a lot more, you know, items that were waist up um, thanks to everyone being on Zoom calls. (laughs) Um, 
But um, yeah, I think one interesting trend that we that we did see um, was, you know, we would we were running sort of a lot of surveys, and there was customers sort of saying that, well, the, you know, the stats that we got was that seventy four percent of millennials telling us that they were more likely to resell fashion to fund the next purchase. Um, and so that was something really interesting and something that really led us to, um, yeah, really wanting to launch the circular wardrobe, um, yeah. you know, yeah. as quickly as possible. Very yeah. Cool. yeah. <laughs> uh, were you influenced when creating this brand, this business, were you influenced by such secondhand marketplaces as StockX or Vestia Collective, Thread Up and The Real Real when you were creating? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there are definitely a lot of great, you know, secondhand marketplaces out there. Um, the main thing that I, I couldn't see anyone doing in the space was actually really focusing on supporting retailers in the space. Mm. Um, our, you know, our circular wardrobe, it provides fashion retailers with this easy way to enter the circular economy and really empower their customers to do the same. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, we've, we've developed this solution to really help the retailer launch into the circular economy and solve, you know, this, this fashion industry waste problem really head on. Um, and yeah, so I guess, you know, I think when I was sort of thinking about Aerobe and launching this, you know, this solution and sort of had a vision for how to improve this industry, I guess, you know, I was looking at the fact that, you know, there was all these big players that had raised a lot of money and I was wondering, are they, are they about to perhaps build what I'm thinking of building? Um, and, um, yeah, I think we, you know, we decided to, to just go after it eventually. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's brought us to, you know, where we are now. So you've talked uh, twice now about both the way in which you've talked to investors and the fact that you did go to the market. And you secured over a million dollars in seed funding. And I, I thought it was pretty impressive, the list of local and international names, including um, good friend, um, investor, advisor, um, Paul Greenberg. Yeah. San Francisco-based um, consumer business investor, Brian Sugar. So can you tell us a little bit about the process you went through and the identification of those individuals and how you convinced them to support a startup? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what the thing that I guess really, really struck me, I guess, when fundraising was just, you know, the different styles of pitching to investors here, you know, in Australia compared to the US. Right. Um, you know, it's funny, us Australians, we are, we love to be self-deprecating. Um, you know, we're not, we're not at all comfortable talking about our achievements or even just giving a, you know, a baseline that we've done something kind of cool once upon a time. Um, and so, yeah, as a culture, we're not self-promoters, whereas in the US, um, you know, they are just huge self-promoters. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was interesting. I think my first pitch to a US investor really did fall flat. And there was this, there was definitely this real, um, I'd say sort of slow process of trying to really get a bit more of an ego and sort of be able to pitch to these investors. Um, but, you know, I think the, the thing you learn pretty quickly um, 
when you are speaking to investors are, you know, where do they fall on that sort of chaos to clarity threshold, which yeah, right. is something, you know, that, you know, a lot, a lot of people talk about in the startup world where, you know, some investors, they're really comfortable with the chaos. They want to see you have big dreams, big visions, crazy big goals. Yep. Um, whereas some investors want that clarity. So they want to see it. Clarity, yeah. yeah. They want to see it in front of them. They want the revenue. They want, you know, the historical performance there. And look at the point, you know, where we were, we, we were you know, really at that point where we were heavily skewed on the chaos end of things, I'd say. Um, when I when I raised, it was, you know, we didn't have the circular wardrobe built. It was just me and the business, um, an MVP I'd thrown together and an idea. Um, and it was also, you know, middle of COVID and then we're playing in this weird B2B2C fashion platform, tech play sustainability space. Um, and, you know, but for, I think really, you know, excellent investors like Paul and Brian, I think, you know, they could see that we were on the precipice of, you know, what is a, you know, a big proposition to retailers. Um, and they, they actually, you know, they both got it really straight away. Um, Brian was one of the ones that I did hit up on her cold Twitter message. Um, but yeah, I think the process, you know, it was, you know, it was, I think there's always for, for most founders raising, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship. I mean, you get to spend a lot of time chatting to great people about what you're doing, um, but at the same time, it's, you know, it is work and a bit of a distraction from the business. So um, it's kind of interesting, this chaos and clarity piece, mm. and the deprivation latitude that goes on in Australia. So I'm guessing that most of the Australian investors wanted clarity. And I'm guessing that in the US, they were a little bit looser and a little bit more interested in the chaos and the big vision. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think generally speaking in Australia, um, there are a lot more investors that are more on the clarity end of things. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say, you know, a lot of our investors that we do have invested uh, I would say, you know, comfortable with the chaos side of things. I think there are, you know, some leading, you know, venture capital firms here that really in, do want to invest in those big, you know, moonshot, you know, ideas um, and they want to see founders have those crazy big goals. And I think that is something that is, um, you know, that's growing, I think, in the investor community here for sure. But, yeah, I think... In the US, um, they have such a big history of, of you know, founders going after big, crazy things and seeing a lot of success out of it that they are gen generally more com comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would have thought, I guess, yes. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned brand partnerships, um, the Arab have, of course, made or, you know, collaborated with. How do you choose who to partner with? Yeah, so, you know, we, um, right now, you know, we're, we're partnering with the best brands with the aim of, you know, people being able to add their items to the circular wardrobe at any of their favourite brands. Um, we're mainly focused in on Australia and at the moment, um, you know, we're also, we're seeing demand internationally. Um, we've recently partnered with a multi-brand platform in Europe 
um, and one of our first New Zealand brands. And we, we have also got, you know, a US brand coming on board next. Um, but we are focused on brands that are creating longer lasting, more timeless pieces because, you know, these are the pieces that our consumers are looking for and that, you know, align with our values. Right. So, um, Helen, if you were, if you could pass on any piece of advice mm. to a startup, say where you were a year ago or so, or anyone looking to enter the retail game, what would it be? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> for me, um, you know, I think there's always two forces that play. I don't know if forces is the right word, but, you know, I think on the one hand, I think it's, you know, it's important um, to have this clear picture of your vision and where you want to take things. Um, but then always being willing to, on the other hand, speak to and listen to your customers and adapt. Um, I think the best thing I did was, was spend several months really speaking to retailers, manufacturers and consumers and not running away with what we thought was the solution. Um, and I think it's not until you really throw yourself into a problem that you can really find what might be a magical solution. Um, you know, I think a lot can really be gained by viewing problems from the genesis and, you know, as problem solvers, you know, we can really fall into the trap of creating quick band-aid fixes to problems, um, which, you know, it's a great way to test, learn and, and iterate, but it doesn't always, you know, enable us to unlock those sort of big picture opportunities. Right. Gotcha. So uh, whilst, whilst Aerobe is obviously, um, you know, a maturing business, what is the future for Aerobe? What's next? What have you got planned? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for the short to medium term, um, you know, we're focused on, on spreading the word about the circular word wardrobe working with fashion brands and retailers to bring their brands and their customers into the circular economy and helping people to, you know, really understand what that means. Um, but I guess, you know, our grand vision for Aerobe is to really lead a seamless circular economy, um, particularly for the fashion industry. Uh, the thing I have learned is that, you know, people do want to resell, they want to recycle things, but the process is hard. Um, and, you know, we don't really have the tools we need to make that seamless. So we want to be building out those pieces to make it simple, to make it enjoyable. Um, and, yeah, to, I guess, um, save the planet and, um, and yeah, help help consumers and retailers with that as well. Cool. That sounds brilliant. Yeah. That's um, <laughs> really admirable. Yeah. Our, um, our second last question is one that we're planning on asking all of our guests on the podcast this year, and that is, and it's a personal question, but what is your preference? I think you might have a bias here, but is your preference online or in-store? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, you know, my preference and coming from someone who runs a tech startup with a big online focus, so I'm, I'm probably completely biased, um, but, you know, my preference is you know, is online. I, I do, you know, personally love the efficiency of online. Um, but, you know, I would say the caveat to that is that there is so much room to improve the online experience. Um, 
there's a lot of features that you get in store that you don't get online. Um, and I think there is that sort of that big opportunity to really replicate the experience of buying in store. And, you know, there's a, a lot of innovation in the primary retail online space for, you know, curation and fit and returns and VR uh, and all of that. But, you know, right now in the pre-owned online space, I'd say we're, we're further off, um, you know, things like authentication, quality photos, VR, fit, um, you know, being, being able to see what, what you, what you look like and what your body shape, um, suits best, you know, these are all sorts of areas, which I think there's, you know, bigger challenges for the second hand space. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's definitely a big opportunity to improve that, um, that as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's an exciting space for sure. I mean, uh, there is so much going on at the moment in the retail area around new ways of purchasing, reusing, new ways of extending purchase life, new ways of putting things together. It's really quite revolutionary. So mm. our last question, and yeah. indeed our last question, again, one we've been constantly asking everyone this season, yeah. in your opinion, what does the future of retail look like? Mm, great question. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think you know, there's, uh, you know, there's this huge trend in the near future. You know, I think with, you know, purpose, it's now taking the stage as the heart and the soul of long-term loyal customer relationships. Um, you know, according to a survey by Deloitte, purpose-driven companies, they, they grow three times faster than their competitors. And so, Look, as you know, if you're a CEO of a retailer today, you know, I think you're in this this cool position and this unique moment in history where your sustainability and social initiatives, all of a sudden they match up and they also drive your financial results. Um, and so, you know, I think where we are definitely seeing this with those big top brands that, you know, they've got big teams in there of strategists and researchers and innovators they're all now really you know diving headfirst into into purpose and sustainability um and so i think that's going to be a huge theme over the next few years um but you know in terms of you know more longer term future um you know i think the future of retail you know i think it's frictionless it's it's circular you know, I really see a world where consumers can access the resale value of anything that they own. Um, and, you know, I think what will be interesting is how how that might change the concept of ownership um, and the way that we do interact with commerce and the durable goods that we consume. Um, and then, you know, what that does is it then provides consumers as well the ability to invest in those more expensive pieces and extend the life of their goods, which in turn, you know, that, that consumer demand is then what will build the business case for retailers and brands to, you know, design and manufacture those higher quality, more sustainable pieces. Um, you really, you really are talking about quite a revolutionary change to the way in which things have been done for the last twenty or thirty years. Yeah, um, well, yeah, I think I think we are we are sort of seeing this, you know, renaissance in 
you know, re-commerce. I mean, buying and selling goods, you know, between your peers, that's something that was, you know, done in ancient times. And I think that's something that's going to pick up. Um, and, yeah, you know, what's driving it is really consumers um, at the end of the day. It's kind of interesting because we have been caught in this cycle, certainly for the last 20-odd years, of just this discretionary purchase for the sake of discretionary purchase, for the sake of discretionary purchase, without really thinking about the impact that has on climate, on society, on everything and anything. And we've just used that single lever to drive business success. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but, I, yeah, I, I think this just, I guess this goes back to that, you know, that alignment of, um, you know, financial incentives now just sitting side by side with with purpose and with sustainability. And so I think there is this, you know, definitely this exciting moment in history to, to dive into a lot of, you know, the social and sustainability initiatives in a way that actually, you know, goes to the core of the business's value proposition for consumers, not just a, you know, a tick, ticking off the box moment anymore. It's 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 a time where um, there's an opportunity to actually, yeah, dive deeper into these solutions. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Retail Oasis Retail Wrap-Up. If you enjoyed the chat, we'd love you to rate and review it. Plus, remember to subscribe and you'll be automatically notified when the next episode airs. If you'd like to learn more about Retail Oasis, please head over to retailoasis.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and TikTok. Yes, we're there too. To support our show, simply tell a friend or send this episode on to someone you know who would appreciate more retail knowledge. And finally, thank you to our sponsor, Afterpay. Bye now, pay later. Thank you.